I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We have been there once before in our study in Jude. Uh, we return there for uh, a few verses later, a passage later on. We will back up and read what we have already studied there under the uh, term the called, and we will extend it into the preserved that we're going to look at this morning. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> We'll begin reading verse 28 of Romans 8 through the end of the chapter. I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's word declares, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to move on in the book of Jude to the next word. And this is a word that uh, we are going to get some, hopefully some encouragement from this morning and also a little bit of challenge along the way, uh, as we're going to see. But uh, largely, this is intended to strengthen us to endure. And we have spent a little time last week uh, shaking a little bit of the foundations of what we have known in theological circles as eternal security as taught in the Calvinistic movement. We're still going to shake those down because those foundations are very poorly placed. And we want to put them squarely into Scripture and understand what we mean by being eternally secure. And in the Bible, there are several words. Uh, many of them are all formed from the same root. It is translated in the book of Jude as preserved uh, in Christ Jesus, or I'm sorry, in Jesus Christ. Uh, but that word preserved is directly linked and derived from the other words that are often used, and that is glorified. That completion of our salvation when we reach that new body and that new place uh, and that new presence. And so that's all wrapped up in this single word, and we're going to investigate it, uh, where we are completed in Christ. And uh, this is important to Jude. It is very important to most of your uh, biblical writers, all of them really, uh, because of his content, of the balance of the book. He wants to remind you that you, God has a plan, an eternal plan for you that you need to endure to receive. And again, we come to this relational facet of all of these words, that they are not unilateral. It is not just God doing this and us being completely passive recipients, but rather we are to be engaged with God in this process. Just as we looked at it in the calling of God, that we are supposed to respond to that calling. If he gives us an invite, we are to respond, either by uh, ignoring it, by hating it, by giving a positive but insufficient response or by giving a faith response that embraces that invitation. 
And so we saw that under the category of calling, uh, the calling of, of, uh, by God that we have received. And then we saw about the sanctification, that again, this is uh, the work of God, certainly, that we are to be engaged in with him. That while he sanctifies us, we are to sanctify ourselves, to be holy as he is holy. And again, sanctification is the same root word as holiness. That we are to be making ourselves holy, just as God is, has, and will make us holy. So he sets us apart. We are to set ourselves apart in addition to that. And so we have these directives. And we're going to see similarly uh, in this area of the completion of our salvation that God is faithful, and that's going to be one of the founding aspects of this. Uh, We're not going to settle on our security based upon the sovereignty of God, but on the faithfulness of God. You might say, well, does it matter? Yes, it does matter, as we're going to see. It matters as to your place in this, and it deals with a lot of the scriptures we began to introduce last week, and we'll probably finish up next week with, uh, particularly in Hebrews, but also in James and and a lot of other passages too, frankly, uh, in Matthew and, and some of the words of Christ there. And so we have this before us. When is our salvation going to be completed? And yes, the Bible does talk about these in the past tense because in God's view, they are completed once they are begun. Because it is not based ultimately upon you, but upon his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, The question for us in our experience, though, and in our knowledge is what's going on in our hearts. And God does know what's going on there. You don't. They say, I don't know what's going on in my own heart. That's what the Bible says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. And so, yes, you can easily deceive yourself into thinking that you are a child of God when we are not, that we have all of this guaranteed for us when we do not, that things are settled when they aren't. And so we are called upon to examine ourselves on a regular basis, and hopefully this is one of those times, particularly next week, though. Today we want to really look at God's side of this. Next week we're going to look a little bit more at our side, but we want to look at God's side of our uh, glorification, our preservation, that he will complete that, our completion of our salvation. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this opportunity to look into your word, and we pray that you might uh, open it to us by your spirit, that you might uh, illumine us by your unction, that it might be spoken forth, not the words of men, but the words of God from your word. And Lord, we pray that they might uh, be guarded today as always from error, from opinion, from all the worldliness, and not only the words be guarded, but our very thoughts. For it is a very simple thing for us to interject philosophies we have picked up all around the world that are in antithesis to you and implant them into your word, thinking we have done right when we have not. And so, Lord, we do pray that you might guard our thinking, that you might purify us as you have called us to be holy, that you've made us holy. And Lord, we want to uh, receive the pure milk of your word this morning. And we pray your help in that. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So, we have this aspect of preservation, glorification, completion. You can kind of put those three in, in together, and, and I'll use them interchangeably this morning. And I want you to understand that that's what we're talking about. And so when we look at the work of Christ... Uh, and his completion of what he has begun. Of course, Philippians says that he is faithful to who has begun a good work in you to complete it. Um, that it's not, he's not just going to start things and then back off and just see what you can do with it. That is not what we're talking about, especially next week when we talk about your responsibility towards enduring. Uh, that somehow God is just sat back and said, well, I gave you all the tools, so just build it. Now, sometimes I'll do that to people. I'll just give them some direction, give them the tools, and then just sit back and watch, because sometimes it's kind of funny. Um, if they don't know what they're doing, to kind of watch them struggle. And then after they, <laughs> I did that to Andrea yesterday. She wanted to learn how to rototill, so I said, well, there it is, go ahead. And I started it and gave it to her, and 
and it rototilled her more than she rototilled the garden. So it's kind of fun, um, but God isn't like that. He doesn't have that perverted sense of humor that I do. Um, and so he doesn't do that to us. He doesn't say, well, here it is now. Let's just watch and see what you do. Ha, ha, ha. That's not what he's going to do. God is much more uh, patient with us. He is much uh, more selfless in that, um, that he is going to give us the tools and then stand right beside us and walk us step by step. And that's really what Jude is trying to describe to his readers is that um, we're calling you to this action. There's going to be a lot of call to action here in Jude of warning. There's all of this against you. But before we get to what's against you, I want to remind you who is for you. <laughs> all right, there's a lot against you. And, and we're going to engage that over the course of this study. Some of, it's, uh, some of it's things that you think are benign. You think, oh, they're there for our good. And we're going to find out that they aren't for your good. Their whole purpose and goal and aspiration is to destroy your trust in God. But you consider them neutral at best. Certainly not your enemy and the enemy of your faith, and yet they are. And so we're going to see that we have all of this stacked up against us in this world, and it's easy to feel overwhelmed and say, oh, woe is me, you know. But no, we don't do that when confronted with the enemy, with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't say that to them. We turn and we look at who is for us, and we see his holiness, and we do like Isaiah and says, woe is me, I am undone. Not because of the enemy, but because of my ally. The fierceness of his holiness, his justice, his purity, his power just undoes us until we begin to reflect that he isn't against us, but for us. This is the one who has called you, invited you. This is the one who has made you holy, that you could be his bride. This is the one who will finish what he has begun. And so Jude wants to remind his readers, this is the work of God. We know that there's a great enemy, and he might seem very powerful, but he is completely incapable in comparison to he who is for us. And this we want to bring out when we get to Romans 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? If he has redeemed us, who can undo it? And Paul asks this question of the Romans in the midst of his treatise on, on his doctrine the, and the doctrine of Christ and of salvation. And in Romans chapter 8, where we have read earlier, he declares this powerful working of God that once he is for us, and let's make sure that, that we understand that necessity. God must be for you. Not in terms of his love for you and setting Christ died for you. In that sense, he is for the world. But for us to be brought into the family of God requires that we be responsive to the invitation. Remember, there's only one out of four responses that are given that are acceptable to God. And that is a complete surrender to him. And so we would have looked at that and said, well, there's two negative responses, two positive responses, but we saw really there were three negative responses, only one positive response, only one that delivers us from darkness. And that is complete surrender. So we come to this, and to Romans, and we find that um, God has begun this. He needs to be for us, and the only way he's for us is if we respond with the one positive way to his calling, that we accept his purification, his sanctification of us, that we engage in that by being responsive and obeying his commands. We found out that he sanctifies us through the word of God. And so if I neglect God's word, how can I expect God to do his work? He says, I sanctify you by my truth. My word is truth. So that's how I set you apart. That's how I make you holy. That is the sword of the Holy Spirit. And so spend time in his word. That's how you're going to be sanctified more and more. But again, remember, God didn't just say, here's my word, and then sit back and watch. You struggle, right? That's what pastor would do. That's not what God would do. God comes and he says, here's my word, and now here's your tutor, Holy Spirit. 
And he's going to open the word to you. He's going to, the biblical term is illuminate, turn the light on for you. So you're not going to read God's word in the dark. If you have accepted his invitation and received his sanctification, you can take his mechanism that he uses to sanctify you, have the tutor, his helper, his comforter, come alongside you and open his word to you. And that's why you, before you go into God's word, you pray. And while you're in God's word, you pray. And you're sensitive. You let God lead and, and read and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's movement. If you're cherishing sin in your heart, you know that that uh, resists the Holy Spirit. You can resist him. You can quench him. Um, there are things in your life that limits his work. And so get rid of those things. Be of an obedient spirit. Then go to God's word and you'll be amazed at what God's word will do for you in setting you apart more and more for God. So spend time in his word. That's the basis of our whole ministry here, really. And that's why we try to get our children in our Word of Life clubs to get into their Bibles and read it and associate prayer with reading the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So God doesn't leave you alone. He sanctifies you. So now he's for us. Once he is for us, he is faithful to finish what he begins. We come to Romans 8, and this was something Paul wanted to address. And I want you to see that this is all couched within the context of dealing with the Holy Spirit. And we do not want to divorce. While Jude says that you are preserved in Christ Jesus, that is the sacrifice. But remember that the Jesus sent the Spirit to do his work in his absence in us. And so the Spirit helps us. It goes on through here. But it's also cast only in the work of the Holy Spirit, but in the suffering of our faith. That there are going to be tests, trials. There are going to be adversities in being a Christian. And so it's in that context that Paul writes to the Roman Christians saying there's going to be adversity. You're going to come up against it. You're going to come up against the enemy, and that's what's going to happen in Jude. We're going to come up against a very powerful enemies, many of them, yet one. They all have one purpose, and that is to destroy your faith. And so in the context that Paul says in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so God didn't dangle us out there without help. He has sent help in the Holy Spirit. And so then we come down and we have studied the other intervening verses. We come to verse 31 and it says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So you have these enemies out there, but you have God for you. So now, how do the enemies rate? What can they do? Can they undo any work of God? No. They are incapable of undoing any work of God that has been established in your life. And so, once you respond to the invitation, you've received the sanctification, you are engaging in those, that act, being in God's word, in his spirit, walking in accordance with that, obeying, trusting and obeying, as our children saying, then comes this wonderful barrage of blessings. Who can bring a charge against you? You are his chosen ones, his elect ones. Um, what's going to happen to you? And he says, can tribulation, can distress, can persecution, can famine, can nakedness, can peril, can sword? Can any of that separate you from the love of Christ? Now, we say, no, it can't, and that's the pep rally. Yes, that's true. No, none of that can separate you from the love of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something worth saying amen to? Absolutely. None of that stuff can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, here is the underside, the naked underbelly of the pep rally, okay? None of these things can separate you from the love of Christ. But all of these things you may have to endure for Christ. And our brethren have in many places. We're excited that none of this can separate us from the love of Christ. I don't know that we're equally excited about the possibility of experiencing these things and yet have the love of Christ. You see, what we want to enjoy is the pep rally. Yay, the love of Christ. Nothing can separate me from it. 
while we're in the comforts of padded chairs and a heated building protected from the harsh winter wind and not hearing the nasty words and the fierceness of the opposition. But what he is declaring here is that you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have opposition. Look at it. You're going to have persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, even people wanting to kill you. And in fact, that is what's going to happen. It says, for your sake, we are killed all day long, like sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It doesn't separate us from the love of Christ. The enemies that we're going to engage in in Jude are not capable of separating us from the love of Christ. For what he has begun, he will complete. He will preserve us. He will glorify his own. Bring them to glory. And thus we have 38 and 39, which is a powerful passage, that none of these things, and he goes, death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things, present things, come, height, depth, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we find that this is wondrous. This is the, the joy. This is the promise. God says, I'm not going to leave you out there on your own. I'm going to walk beside you and nothing you encounter, no opposition that you face, uh, are you going to have to do it by yourself. I will be right there. And he does that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us, his word, his people around us. He has given us these tools to preserve us, to help us to endure. And this is something we're going to really look at next week. But I want you to see God's side of it. That God's side is that I will always be there alongside of you, bringing things to their conclusion. Generally, the experience that I see from many Western Christians, I don't see it in other countries that I go to, um, I see them embracing hardship um, and just anticipating it. Well, of course we're going to have enemies. Of course they're going to make our life hard. Um, and we're prepared for that. They're prepared in their mind, and, and when it's, it's sobering. It is sobering and uh, humiliating for, to go there and be there to teach them doctrine, and they're teaching me Christianity. When I have to go and I have to teach these young men, and there's Anoop, and, and you get to know the story of Anoop in my class, and, and uh, he's graduating. Well, what, where are you going? I'm going back to my village. Oh, that's great. Well, it's, I'm there to replace the pastor because the village burned him down in his house, and I'm going to replace him. He's going back to the village that burned down his pastor in his house with his family. And you go, oh, you're dead serious about this. This isn't just something you do on Sundays. This isn't just something that you think about now and again. And we become to understand something that we don't appreciate here in this country, and that is that many of our brethren are prepared to endure this and much more. Because God is near to them. It's not because they're holier Christians. It is not because they have a greater salvation. It is because they recognize God's nearness. And they are prepared for this. They know his word and they know it, that the love of Christ will move them. What does it move them to do? To move away for two years, be trained and come back right into the very village that vowed to kill any pastor that tried to start a church there. That kind of character that kind of commitment is what God 
produces in those that walk in his truth. And it says nothing out there in the world can separate you from the love of Christ. None of these adversaries, and some of them are supernatural. When you talk about principalities, powers, uh, some of them are unknown things to come. We don't know the future. There are authorities around us that seem to have all the resources, and we have none. But we have one resource, and that is Jesus Christ, the love of Christ, that, that is more powerful than all their resources combined. And this God's offers, and this is why Paul, with such confidence, can come to the Roman Christians and say, listen, <laughs> there is no one that can stand against you. Not on a spiritual plane. They can do these things to your body. They can do these things and attack you, but they cannot destroy what you have with Christ because you have an invitation from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to a banquet feast that they know nothing of. You have been set apart, sanctified by that same Holy One that you can be holy as He is holy. Therefore, you are separate from the world. You are a different person than they could ever understand you to be until God works in their life and they respond to that same invitation they can't grasp what you have and then the knowledge and look at the how much Paul talks about his knowledge look at it in verse 28 and we know all the way down and we could go through each one but I'm just gonna first and last I am persuaded verse 38 I know, I'm persuaded, these things we have knowledge of. And he asks a series of questions to challenge your thinking, engage you to think rationally through this and super rationally through this process. What do they have compared to what you have? What can they say compared to what God has said? God says, you're my child, welcome. What does it matter what they say? They're going to bring charges against his elect? No. I don't care what the world says about me. If God says, well done. If God says, you're my child. I can't, I, there's no comparison between those two in terms of influence. I, granted, these people I, I engage with more regularly perhaps and I see them face to face and yet I know that there is a day when I'll see my Savior face to face and I will hear his words and I want to make sure those words are the words I want to hear and I'm not going to sacrifice that future for just making sure nobody talks ill of me on this side of heaven. I frankly don't care. In comparison to the words of Christ and his approval, the approval of the world is detested. I detest the approval of the world because I know that if they approve of me, I'm not following Christ very well. Because Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you if you follow me. Teaching this to young people is a difficult thing to do. We see in our Word Life Clubs how many of them get to that crucial 6th and 7th grade and we lose them because they actually care what 8th graders think of them. It is the saddest condition that a 6th grader cares what an 8th grader thinks of them. More than mom and dad think, more than their teachers think, more than their pastor thinks of them. They think about what an 8th grader thinks of them, a 13-year-old that isn't even really human. There's some other species when they're 13. But a 6th grader thinks that they're all that, someone to be followed. That's why I pretty much don't think any teenagers should be clumped together in public schools. I think we should just stop it right at 8th grade and be done. Make up high school and above. Voluntary. 
Oh, that we want our young people to understand that this thing of peers' approval is a lie that destroys. That there's only one approval that we should be concerned about, and that is God's. So God comes alongside us, and whether we recognize it or not, he is there to help work everything, even these bad things, together for our good, that we might finish the course. And this is very important to Paul. And it comes out in Philippians. Again, remember he began Philippians with you, began a good work in you, is faithful, will complete it. Right? Well, how does he end Philippians? Philippians chapter 3 and even into chapter 4, I have run the course. And I'm still pressing on. What am I pressing toward? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he understood that Jesus Christ was with him all the way along that journey. And Paul endured everything he had to endure. Not because he was a special character, but because God was with him. And this is something we have consistently through Scripture um, all the way back. And, And let's do a little Sunday school work here. Let's go back to some of these people. What? was God's promise to his people that he called into his service. Go out and serve me. How can I do this? Well, what does he sell Jacob? Jacob has a dream. Here I am. I'm right here. Jacob thinks it's that rock in that place, and he sets up Bethel. Um, And God says, I'm with you. I'm not not a local deity. (laughs) I'm not just in one place. That was a predominant Eastern thinking that, that deities were assigned to localities. And uh, hence the high places and things like that. Uh, God says, I'm not a local deity. I'll be with you wherever you go. And we go right through and we see God's promises. I'll be with you. Go to Abraham. Go to a place I'll go. Just go. I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. Well, is God there not with him along the way? Yes. How else does Abraham get to where he's supposed to be? God's with him. All the way through. Moses Go to my service. Moses has a ton of excuses, like most of us, of why we can't do things for God. And what does God say? I'll be with you. If you need a visual helper for that knowledge, here's your staff. And think of your staff as the mechanism I'll use to be with you. What does he tell Joshua when he takes the new assignment on? Be of good courage. Do not be afraid. I'll be with you. Be of good courage. Do not be afraid. I'll be with you. As we go through Scripture, we see consistently this facet of the walk of God's people. That when we engage in his service, we are up against it, yes. But we're not alone against it. We have the Almighty One on our side. And so he who is going to glorify, to purify, who's going to complete our salvation, will get us from point A to point B. And he is not just jumping ahead to point B waiting for you. He is walking along with you all the way through this journey of faith from the time when he is for us to the time that we are with him in his presence. He is there. And we tend to not think of him in that fashion. We think of him intersecting our life on occasions. And when I interview and talk to Christians, that's, that's kind of how they, they talk about it. Like there's these little intersections with God. Um, that's error. That God intersects your life on occasions here and there. And I can see his hand was there. Well, Why didn't you see his hand every day? Because he was there every day. That's his promise. An intersecting God means that he's only briefly and occasionally actually involved in your life. And that would be a sad fact. That would be a Christianity I wouldn't want to live. What if your next intersection isn't for a long time to come? You're on your own. No. His course is parallel with ours and and right up against ours is with us constantly through that. 
He's not just there during your worship services. He's not just there when you pray. He is always there, and that's why we can always pray with, and should always be in that attitude that God is with me here. He is with me at this dinner table. That's why we pray. He is with me at work. That's, it's okay to pray there. They can't stop you. Did you know that? Not just because we live in this country. They, no one can stop you from praying anywhere. We didn't take prayer out of schools. Trust me. I prayed all through school. Every test I prayed. But that was my intersecting faith. I thought God only intersects me when I really need him. We just have these crossroads with God. God says, I'm not interested in crossroads with you. I am here. I've invited you. You're my bride. I've set you apart unto myself. And now I'm going to be with you every step to finish what has begun. I am not an intersection God. I am right there in the lane with you all the way. But our attitude towards God is that he just intersects our life every now and then. But Paul says, no, he works all things together. All things. There's only one way God can work all things together, and that's if he's there through all things. He is always there. And it's time for us to dismiss this idea that God is only occasionally and randomly involved in our life. If that's the case, you are not his child. You are not his bride. You are not in the condition of having God for you. He is always there. Always there. And so he calls us to engage him. Perhaps one of the truer versions of man's idea of God is in Jonah, thinking that you can hide from him, thinking that you can do his job one day, going out and preaching the truth, and then sit up on a mountain and, and, and not do his job the next day, and just be self-interested, and then thinking that God isn't in the gourd plant, and that God isn't in the worm. God was there all the way along because he's there interested in Jonah from start to finish. He was there on the boat. He was there in, in the fish's belly. God was there. But yet Jonah's attitude is much more like ours than Paul's is like, than we're like Paul's. We are not like Paul in our attitude towards God. We are much more like Jonah, that we intersect God on occasions. Here and there. Sometimes at our choosing, sometimes at his choosing, but we don't have this constancy. And when we come to the idea of preserved, of glorified, why is God talking about it in the past tense? Because he is constantly there assuring that it will happen. That once he is for us, nothing will ever override, overpower, consume, destroy his child. Nothing. And he will be right there holding our hand to make sure that that is the case. That is his promise. They can destroy this flesh, yet in, my, in the flesh I will see God. He'll give us a new body. Destroy this one. Fine. You're not going to separate me from my Christ, from his love, from his constancy in preserving me till that day. This is the promise of God. His constancy is what gives us eternal security. That is, and when I say constancy, the word that you should think of is faithful. His faithfulness, his constancy, establishes our eternity. Now, earlier I said that we're going to oppose another position that has a, a warped view of eternal security. And that warped view is that God is doing everything. That is, that he is making everything happen. That's not what this verse says, verse, verse um, 28. He says he's working together all things for our good. doesn't mean he's making everything happen, but that he's working all things together for our good. That he can take the evil men do and for purposes of his people and his kingdom, he can... Work 
it out for our benefit, and for the benefit of his kingdom. But we find that, that this position that says that, well, God has to do everything and you are completely passive because his sovereignty overrides everything. And therefore, you have no choices. You have no, uh, you have no role. In a, in a Calvinistic model, you really have no role. God has to do it all. And from, from A to Z, from start to finish, every single element of your salvation um, is completely God and none of you. There's no responsiveness. There's no um, element that God doesn't manufacture in you by direct work. And that is the basis of their eternal security. So you're secure because you weren't involved in it to begin with. You were just the recipient. You were just along for the ride. You were just the passenger in the vehicle of God's sovereignty. And he just happened to let you in, not let you in, he just happened to put you in his vehicle and not your neighbor. He just happened to put you in his vehicle and not your family member. He just ran, picked you. He could save everyone, but he's only going to pick some. And because he does it from A to Z, and there is no element of your engagement, therefore you must be secure because it is all God and none you. And this is contrary to the scriptures, as we're going to see extensively next week. What this promise is, what this idea of God's glorification of you, that you are glorified, that he who has begun it will complete it, that he will preserve you, what this concept is is that God is with us once he is for us. Once God is for us, he is with us all the way along to keep us. And we're going to see some of those mechanisms that he uses. Like he uses the word of God to sanctify us, he has other mechanisms. And that's why we get to Hebrews and says, you need to be in the word. You need to be with God's people. You need to be meeting together regularly. Why? To keep you, preserve you. Because that is one of the mechanisms by which God works. You need to be under the teaching of his word. Hence these books. You need to be warned about the possibility of falling off to this side or that side and the false teachers that are out there and the opposition and adversity that is out there so that you do not have yourself unrooted and are destroyed when the sun comes out and burns. You're still grounded. So God has these mechanisms there and among them, you know, Paul says this is the church. This is what you're here for. This is why I'm here for. This is why you have pastors. This is why you have teachers. This is why you have fellowship one with another. This is, this is why you have the Holy Spirit to endure. Because God is along with you all through it. He's not far off. He's not some God up there that has determined everything from start to finish and therefore, if you happen to be one of the ones he lets into his salvation bus or brings into his salvation bus, that you know that you will reach your destination because he put you in the bus, the bus is his, he's making the bus move, and you're just sitting there as a blob. That is not the biblical model of eternal security, that somehow that's why I'm eternally secure, is because it's, no, our eternal security is, is built upon the fact that First of all, God must be for us, which means I had to answer his invitation, and that I need to be at a walk with him beside me, not intersecting me. And so we sing the song, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. What a great phrase. Glad someone put it to song so we could have it and remember it. When we walk with the Lord, he is with us. In the light of his word, spirit illuminating us to his truth, sanctification. What a glory he sheds on our way.
And remember the word glorification, preservation, completion are essentially the same. So when you see the idea that you are preserved, do not think of it as we're going to talk a lot that somehow um, I prayed the sinner's prayer, therefore I take I go right to First John five twelve and I know that I have eternal life and um, I can live however I want in between and um, when I get to the pearly gates they'll look in the book of life and there it is because I prayed this prayer back then that is not the concept of eternal security that the Bible teaches anywhere that I can find and I go back to the example of the Hebrews the author of Hebrews uses and that is you know there's a lot of people that went through the Red Sea on dry ground that had that experience that were later condemned by God and destroyed because they went after something that wasn't God and worshipped and served him, it, instead of the one true and living God, and God destroyed them. Yeah, you can have this experience at this point in your life. That alone is not the guarantee of the finish. The guarantee of the finish is that God is walking with you and you with God. And I want you to understand something. God will keep his part. He is constant. He is faithful. It is his faithfulness that gives us assurance of our salvation, not his sovereignty. Not that he has determined it for you, but rather that together we are walking and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All these adversities are going to come and they're frightening when you read the list. People wanting to kill you, peril, famine, nakedness. Nothing that is on your wish list, I don't think, for the season. But none of those things can separate you from Christ, from his love. He will keep walking with his own, side by side. You'll have a part to play in that. But like a loving parent with his child, like a loving husband with his wife, a groom with his bride, you take them in their hand and you walk with them. You give them your arm that they might walk and steady themselves on you. And that is what our God is. That's how he preserves, is by walking with us. Day by day, hour by hour, he is there. And nothing can come against us in that condition. There are perils, and they are real. And anyone that takes all these passages of Scripture, including Jude, he regains a lot of their passages and tries to make them... uh, false warnings fire alarms, if you will, that are just a test, um, does an injustice to not only God's word, but to God's people. Because you have people unprepared and unbraced for the fact that you're going to have to cling to God in those times of peril. The way is narrow. And it's perilous. Few there be that find it. Once you find that way, God says, I'll walk it with you because I've invited you. I have the destination established and I am your perfect guide. I am your perfect protector, defender. I will preserve you. I will complete this assignment. I'll carry you if I have to. But you have to stay close. And that's what a book like Jude is all about. Keep aware that you need to cling to Christ and that means you're going to have to be able to identify error and the adversary because the adversary is sneaky. Did you know that? He's sneaky. He's not going to come to you with big horns and a long tail and 
He's not going to come to you ugly. He's not going to come to you scary. He's going to come to you sneakily, stealthily. An angel of light to deceive you. But God, for those who have God for them, because they've accepted his invitation the one way you can and should, one way you should to have him for us, will walk with you all the way along. And this is what is brought out by Paul. That we can't be separated because the love of Christ is attached to us. He has attached his love to us in such a manner that nothing can separate it. His preservation is not just historical, it is present and it is future. It is completed not by his decree of his sovereignty, it is accomplished by the daily exercise of his faithfulness. This is how we are preserved in our salvation. And yes, we rejoice that God will finish it and complete it But we also recognize that this is why so many books of the New Testament were written was to keep us walking in the love of Christ. Love of Christ isn't going anywhere. It is an anchor. It is solid. It is strong. It has the power to provide. As we're going to see next week, we are called to cling to it, to the rock of our salvation. It won't move. It can't be tripped, deterred, disrupted. He is faithful. Faithful is he who will do it. Not built upon the fact that he's doing everything, but because he is there every day in all things.